Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Square Ball Podcast. Hello there and welcome to this very special edition of the Square Ball Podcast. I'm Dan Moylan and with me is Phil Hay. Hello. Hello, Phil Hay. Uh, you've written a book, and that's very exciting. Have you heard about it? I haven't tweeted at all. Well, if you are watching on YouTube, here is the book. It's called And It Was Beautiful, Marcelo Bielsa and the Rebirth of Leeds United. And it's out now as you either watch or listen to this. And by the way, if you're listening to this, you can have a watch of it on YouTube. If you're on YouTube, you can listen to it. Take it anywhere you want to. Just um, search out our channel, The Square Ball. It's a book, and it's got a lot of words in it. I feel like you should read a chapter of it. You know, it should be a bit like Jack and Ori. I'll sit here and um, and we can do some some pictures in in the background. Yes, it indeed is. The problem with that, Phil, is that Ralph Ineson has done the audiobook version. He of has, it, and he's got the best Yorkshire voice in the world, and I could never compete with that. So I wouldn't even bother trying. So no. yours is not as sexy, I'm afraid. No, I need to add a lot more gravel and baritone mm-hmm. to, to my voice. Um, anyway, let's get into the the chat about the book. We're here to talk about the book and how it all came together. And Marcelo Bielsa, the subject of the book. How would you even start with something like this? Because I was just obviously being glib when I said there's a lot of words in it. There are a lot of words in it. How many words are in it? Um, it's just over 80,000, um, somewhere between 80 and 90, which was genuinely what we were targeting. Um, but that's always one of the considerations at, at the outset. 90,000 words is quite a daunting number when you've written zero. Um, and when the, the publishers got in touch with me about doing it, they were very keen. They had a good idea of how to structure it and, and how it, it might flow. But you always have that thought in your head of, should I do this? Am I too busy? We've got the kids. I've got work. You know, I've got the stuff going on with the, the athletic. And once you get into it, you're delighted that you said yes. But there's always that, that little period beforehand where you think, I could just make my life easy and, and say, <laughs> say no, to, no to this. But I did realise with Bielsa that th- there hadn't really been anything prior to him in the time I covered Leeds, that was a story really, really worthy of a book. I'd done one 12, 13 years ago on the, the 15-point deduction, and that was there was a lot to that, and it was very interesting. It, the ins and outs of it were education for me, learning experience about CBAs and insolvency processes. But they lost in the playoff final, and you know it, there were another two seasons in League One. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't kind of that complete package that it's been under Bielsa. But I, I've had the, the pleasure of writing about Bielsa for the three years he's been at Leeds, and there's been so much to it, so many facets and so many different angles that, if anything, you had more information than you needed. You had more than you you needed to fall back on. So there was never going to be a shortage of content in it. It was all just about how best to tell the story of a really, really unique coach. It's interesting that there's too much content to go in it because he doesn't really speak, does he? He doesn't talk to anybody. Although, I mean, spoiler alert, you do manage to get a little bit out of him in this book. Yeah. I didn't want this to be published or to arrive without at least making the effort to try and get something something out of him. And what I mean is that I knew that he wouldn't do a one-on-one and I didn't want to ask him for a one-on-one because I, I've been around long enough to know that that's not how it works with him. You know, it's been perfectly obvious from the start, perfectly obvious at previous clubs. I think it would have been a bit insulting for me to have said, would you do a sit-down for this? Because you know, you know that he wouldn't. But also, the more I thought about this, the more I kind of wondered if he said to you one day right you've got an hour with me you can sit down you can ask me anything for an hour given that you've got Newell's old boys and his life before then you've got his time in Mexico you've got Bilbao you've got Argentina you've got Chile you've got Marseille you've got Leo you've got Lazio all two days of it and now you've got Leeds United 
What on earth would you ask in an hour that would scratch the surface? Are, are you going to try and scut thinly over the top of it? Or, and I, it sort of occurred to me that a bit better idea would be focus on one specific thing that you want to, to know about him. So there were things that I wanted to know about him, particularly about his early years, you know, his years in, in Argentina and at Newell's. So I wrote a letter to him and I said to him, look, I know you don't do one-on-ones, so I don't want you to feel like I'm asking for that and I don't really want you to do that because, you you know, it's kind of break from, from principle. But there are things that I, although there is a specific thing that I want to know. So I asked the question in the letter and I said, look, if, if you want to reply to this, that'd be great. If you don't, then no problem. And I totally understand because I, I know the drill. And he basically said, look, if you ask this at the end of a press conference, then I will answer. If you <laughs> ask these questions, then I'll tell you. So at the end of the press conference before Leeds versus Sheffield United, I did and he did. That's great. I mean, yeah, you're right. I, I'd probably just end up hugging him for half an hour if he gave me an hour of his time. <laughs> Get this man off me, please. <laughs> but it, but if you think about it, and, and also the fact that I don't speak Spanish, much regret that. Um, was the letter in English? The letter was in English, yes, because I didn't feel that me writing it in Spanish via either Google Translate or getting somebody else to, to help would necessarily have conveyed exactly what it was that, that I wanted wanted to ask. But because he speaks in Spanish and I would speak in English and you would have translation, you know, even if you sat down with him for an hour, you could trim time out of that because a lot of it would be lost to the translation. So how much in that hour, if you wanted to know about his entire career, how much would you actually find out? I mean, mm. next to nothing. I always think if you did a, an autobiography, with Bielsa, if he agreed to do his autobiography, you would need months. I mean, months, weeks, months, hours, loads and loads of time to go through everything from start to finish because the story is so intricate and it's so long. I mean, you're talking about 30 years in management and more to the point, a lot of it that that has never really been properly understood and to be quite honest, probably never will be properly understood because it's all upstairs with him. So that was, that was really where that came from, for the idea that if you were going to get the chance to get anything out of him, you had to decide what it was that you really wanted to know. And what did you want to know? I mean, for me, it distills it down into one question. See if you agree with this. It's it's the question you pose. I mean, again, spoiler alert, but right at the end, what does football do for Marcelo Bielsa and, and where does it all come from? Those are the two kind of pillars, I guess. People remember a piece I did for The Athletic before Christmas and it was with a guy called Fabian Costello and Fabian was one of the players in Bielsa's first youth team at Newell's. And the stories he told about the way they trained, the way they prepared, what they did physically, the massive difference between them as a squad at Newell's and basically every other squad, youth team squad at the club, made me wonder where that came from. It wasn't normal in Argentina. It wasn't actually that normal, according to Fabian, that you had somebody in their 20s who would coach you. Everybody thought of coaches as kind of grandfather's age, you know, more more kind of elder statesmen, um, not, you know, somebody who just retired and looked very fresh faced. But he, you know, he, he had all these thoughts in his head, like using broomsticks as mannequins and getting the boys to play handball because it was much easier to pass the ball with your hands. And if you if you forgot about passing the ball, you could concentrate on getting your positioning right. So you knew where you should be, getting them to walk on kicking with their, their instep. And, and the big thing as well is focus on lactic acid that the boys had never heard about. They had no idea what this was. They didn't understand why he was making them run hard before a game. They were thinking this is a complete waste of energy. But then you would get onto the pitch, the lactic, lactic acid would flush out of your system and you would feel the benefit of it. And So I wanted to know where the passion for football came from, but also where these ideas came from. What, what was it that made him think about this stuff? Because nobody else seemed to be thinking about it. So the structure of the book, you sat there, laptop opens on, on day one, you've got 80, 90,000 words to write, whatever it may be. Where do you even start to write a book about Marcelo Bielsa? It's a bit like Alter's Forward, where he says he pushed open the door to meet Bielsa for the first time and the room was like NASA and his only thought was, help us, what are we going to do? Um, I, love, so I love that detail, by the way, like the, the five computers were just sat there waiting for us in, in the hotel room when they flew over to Buenos Aires. Oh yeah, absolutely. Which now, when you look back, you totally expect, you wouldn't you imagine it being any different. But I think Alter talks about how Bielsa had gone a bit incognito for 12 hours, 24 hours and hadn't replied to a message he sent and author was worried about, have I upset him? You know, is this all going to fall apart? Because he'd flown out with Radrizani and um, Carlos Corbin had gone with him too because the idea was that Corbin would get involved in the first team squad as, as he did. And I think Alter, having kind of stuck his neck out with this one, was suddenly in that horrible position of thinking, we've come here. Is he suddenly going to say, actually, do you know what? I'm not interested. I don't want to see you. Have a nice flight home. 
so he, 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 there was that tension, uh, but he had no idea what was waiting for him in the room when they walked into this um, meeting room. And it was, it was just packed full of um, almost like and then, Almost like Otter's going for the job interview. Well, but that, you see, that is exactly how it basically was. Ra- Radrazani wanted to feel Bielsa out to work out whether the two of them could work together, whether this was, was going to happen. But there is no doubt at all when you speak to Otter and to Angus Kinnear and, and other people who were involved that they were selling this to Bielsa rather than Bielsa selling it to them. Bielsa did his best to sell himself. You know, he wasn't so, um, he wasn't arrogant in the sense of saying, if you want me, I'm coming. He did tell them how it would be. If you employ me, this is what I'm going to do and we're going to work like this, blah, 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 blah. But he did make the effort to say, this is what I know about your players. This is what I know about your squad. This is what I know about the, the championship. But it was like he was doing the interviewing. You know, it, it, what, that's how they felt, as if they were the ones who were having to pitch leads to him, not the, the other way around. So, yes, when, when I first sat down with a blank page, it was a bit like, help, how am I going to do this? But basically, I, I went to Paper Chase and I bought a huge big paper um, book, notepad, and I just scribbled endless notes in it and made notes on the laptop. The things I remembered, the things I wanted to include, the stories that kind of hadn't been told, the stories that needed to be expanded on, the people I wanted to try and speak to, which is another aspect that we can we can chat about because there aren't that many people who know him well who are happy to speak. He isn't somebody who likes to be spoken about, particularly from when it's people close to him. Um, he's, he's a person who likes to keep a lot about him private, even though he has this wildly public persona. You know, so many people know who he is now. And basically it went from there. You start writing and the story sort of builds itself. Because you do reveal in the book that, the staff are all subject to NDAs. So uh, the deal at Leeds is structured in such a way that Bielsa gets paid a salary and then it all gets divvied up among his staff as well. So he pays himself and then he pays all his staff, which is quite unconventional actually for football. You would expect them to be employees of the club. However, they're actually employees of his and, and part and parcel of that is the NDAs they all have to sign. And one of the wrinkles when it came to getting him to renew his contract was they actually wanted to tighten up some of the NDAs too. Yeah, so it, it kind of protects the secrecy of what's going on round about him and I think prevents anybody speaking in too, in too much detail about what, what he does and how he works and what it's likely what it's actually like being with him. The, I mean, someone got the wrong end of the stick of this a, a few weeks ago and, and seemed to be under the impression that Bielsa gets paid and then hands out bags full of cash to, to people. It's all structured and it's all taxed and it's all, you know, it's all above board. But you're right, they wouldn't, Arrange that they wouldn't have this arrangement with another manager. Another manager wouldn't ask for this arrangement realistically because you have the, I guess, the potential problem or the potential stress further down the line of issues developing with assistants or analysts or coaches who expect to be paid and feel like they haven't had what they're due or feel like the goalposts have moved. But it's how Bielsa has always done it, and it's kind of non-negotiable thing with him, and it and it works because the staff who are with him, particularly Pablo Quiroga and Diego Reyes, intensely loyal guys who go with him. Everywhere. I mean, he basically picks up the phone and they're off. You know, like Reyes is from Chile, Quirog is from um, from Argentina. In between jobs, they'll, I think, go back to their lives. Um, Quiroga especially, you know, he, there's a local club close to him where he does a bit of work, I presume for free. That's what they said. And he coach, he'll help out. You know, it's an, an amateur club, so he'll help out with facilities and, and that sort of thing. But Bielsa picks up the phone to say, I'm potentially going to Leeds. And and they're off ski. And, and it's not like they just get on the plane and fly over with them. They were at the meeting, the first meeting that um, Radrazani and Orta had, you know, where, where he had all this stuff laid out. It was them who had to get the, the flip chart sorted, who had to get all the analysis put together um, for, for him to use. So, you know, they, they're very, very much under his control, but seemingly very happy to be under his control. It almost strikes me as being a little bit like Mission Impossible. You know, that way you just hire in the the specialist crack hit squad to come and fix everything. That's what it's like. And he knows exactly who who he wants. But at the same time, and I, I talk about this in one of the chapters, he's very open to approaches from people that want to work with him, particularly younger people who are kind of learning their way. A lot of people will write to Bielsa and say, you know, if, if they're sensible, they'll write to him and say, here's an analysis project that I've done. Um, this is, I, I studied, I don't know, Euro 2020. And I looked at the defensive structures of each team or I looked at the attacking routines that were used or the difference between the attacking routines at the World Cup and the Euros, how have things changed? And if Bielsa sees stuff that he likes, he'll engage with these people and he he will quite often give them a chance to get involved. I mean, this is how it went with Quiroga. Quiroga was known by somebody else and was um, recommended to Bielsa. So Bielsa set him an analysis task, I think, right, saying the 2006 World Cup, have a look at various things that went on in it and feedback to me. 
and I'll draw a view, I'll take a view on whether or not you, you have what it takes. Ray has literally tipped up to the training ground in Chile. I want to work for you. And again, it was a case of, okay, well, I'll test this guy. As somebody said to me, he basically submerges them in oil for an hour. And if they come up breathing, he says, fine, you're good enough for me. On, <laughs> on we go. So it it's not as if it's a totally closed shop. They call it the Iron Circle roundabout, but it's not as if other people, you know, like Coburn and so on, don't ever get into it. He just, he, he's very, very big on loyalty and he needs people around him that he feels he can absolutely trust. And it does change and evolve over time. Like uh, Benoit Delaval, who's his fitness coach at Leeds, came from France rather than being his original fitness coach that came with him prior to that. Yeah, it was a guy called um, Gabriel Micaiah who had been with him previously, but he obviously saw something in Delaval that, that he um, that he really liked at Lille. And, and that is often often how it goes. And, and people speak very highly of Delaval. I mean, the, the fitness levels, uh, you know, they speak for themselves. You don't really need to talk them up too much because it's perfectly obvious to, to everybody. But again, you're talking about guys who take no time off. I mean, one of the reasons why Diego Flores went last summer, and nothing was really made of this. Bielsa's never really spoken about it. But Flores went before the start of the Premier League season. And essentially, he, from what I understand, he felt like he needed a break. You know, he'd, he'd been with Bielsa right the way through. It was incredibly intense. There'd been the COVID shutdown where they hadn't really had any time off. And the season had gone on in, well into July and there was a very short period before pre-season started. And he just felt, I'm told that he's back in Cordoba now and just felt that enough was enough. And it wasn't that he was unhappy. I just think he felt that it, his body and his mind needed a, needed a break, needed a rest and, and to, to cut himself away from it. But some of them just seem to have endless, endless energy, as much energy as Bielsa. And I think if you're lacking stamina in any respect, if you're lacking stamina as a player or as a coach or as a chief exec or an owner, or a director of football, then you are absolutely toast with him. And we're into uncharted waters where that's concerned, aren't we? Because the Bielsa project, if that's what you want to call it, the experiment has never lasted this long anywhere. No. So volume two coming up in, <laughs> in, in a year's time. Um, I know I don't, I don't think that'll be happening, but it is true. And one of the themes that I really wanted to get into in the book was away from the football and the technical stuff and the, the analysis and everything, which does, you know, there is a lot about that. It was the relationship that he developed with a city which, to be quite honest, by the time he arrived, was borderline sick of the club. You know, it wasn't that they'd given up on the club and that the loyalty was still there. But even in Radrazani's first year, there were things that were, you know, it caused massive friction. The badge, the Myanmar tour, the form, the sacking of Christensen, Heckenbottom coming in, it not working out, the players who'd all been signed, the ones that didn't work out, it... It was quite a sort of poisonous environment. It was like a permanent cycle of mediocrity. Sometimes it was worse than mediocre. And it was actually quite a big leap of faith for people to look at Bielsa and say en masse, and this is how it felt, do you know what? This guy might do it without much evidence of that or without much promise of that. As soon as he came in, there was this definite excitement and this feeling of this might be the one. Without a doubt, it helped that they annihilated Stoke on the first day because that was different to anything we'd seen for years. You came out of that thinking that was really, really special. So straight away, people were able to inject it and to go with it. But I do think the relationship between him and the city is something quite extraordinary. You've got murals here that were never here before. You've got a kind of you've got a kind of fixation now with the club, which is kind of always you know it's not like that's new, but I think it's intensified to a an extreme level and, and something people won't have seen since, you know, the Champions League run or the, the Wilkinson era. It really is up there with those things. And one of the reasons that I wanted Arthur to do the forward is because it was essentially his decision. You know, Radrazani signed it off, but Bielsa was his pick. And I do think that it probably has been the most important single decision by anybody at the club since they since they went for Wilkinson. And it's mentioned in the book that Arthur said to Radrazani, look, this one's on me, pin it on me. This is my gamble. If this doesn't work, then you can fire me because he's, he's my guy. Because Radrazani was getting messages from people saying, I'm not sure this is a good idea. Do you know, do you know about this guy? Have you seen what went on at Leo? You know, he can be volatile. You might find that you employ him and he's gone in no space of time. So Radrazani had these messages on his phone and was getting these phone calls. And, and yeah, Alter said to him, we need to be brave with this. We've got to be brave if we do this, it's my choice and it goes wrong. You sack me as director of football. I'll need to go. You have to sack me. But I honestly think that this this could work. 
And I mean, Alta says quite openly, he didn't think Bielsa would be interested and he thought Bielsa would have better offers and would maybe see the championship and leaders below him. But as soon as Bielsa said to them, tell you what, come and see me in Buenos Aires and we'll chat this over. Alta felt that they were being tested. It was a case of if you come and you make the effort and the right people turn up and you listen to what I have to say, you know, 5,000 miles away from Leeds, then I'll know that you're serious and I might actually think about this. If you can't be bothered to come or if you just want to do a Zoom call, then there's no point in this going any further. But if you are willing to make the trip and to fly out here, then yeah, let's talk. One of the things that you mentioned there, and it's touched on in the book, is the relationship with the city. And you mentioned in the book that the West Ham gig came up in 2015, but he just didn't feel that the ownership there was something he wanted to necessarily work with. But also, living in London is a completely different proposition to living in Yorkshire. And you look at his time at Bilbao, and I wonder how much the geographical aspect of it and the city region played into his decision to come to Leeds. It's definitely the case that he wasn't particularly sold on the board at West Ham. I think the, the project there didn't feel right to him. I would suspect that deep down as well, Leeds as a city and a club and, and what it's like up here is more in tune with somebody who is so obsessed and in love with Newell's Old Boys and Rosario than a club in, in London would be. West Ham are a very, very big club and that was a very, very good job. No doubt about it. But I think it would have been difficult for West Ham, not just as a club, but as a culture, to you know embrace him in the way that, that he has in Leeds. He's got this weird thing now where he tries not to take credit for anything and he tries to avoid too much attention. <laughs> but he's always going to be synonymous with Leeds and Leeds are always going to be synonymous with him. And I think even, even when he goes, and this might be an issue for the next coach who comes in, it's going to take ages before the kind of feel of Bielsa and the you know the sort of positive smell of Bielsa is gone, um, because the impact has been has been that big. And I've never seen a manager anywhere really. I mean, I, perhaps there are exceptions. You know, maybe you could say Alex Ferguson over at Manchester United, but even he had those years where he had banners, Tara Fergie, and all that sort of stuff. I can't think of many managers who have just been unanimously popular from the get go. And I know that's down to his football, and I know that's down to him. And basically, it's down to the fact that it's been a success. But it's been a success because of him. It's not None of this has been by chance at all. He's written a, a massive, significant chapter in the history of Leeds. There's no two ways about it. And it's one of the things I've become aware of. And maybe this was part of the inspiration for writing the book. You tell me. Just the idea of living through history. And, and it needs to be documented. I agree with that. I did say in the letter to him, given what I've covered at this club and given how it's gone, I find it hard to imagine another period that will inspire me to write in the way that this has. And I struggle to think of another period that leads that will necessarily justify a 300-page book. Don't get me wrong, if they get into Europe or if they, they win the title or, what, or whatever else at some stage, then, then perhaps it changes. But even then, I can't see anything that would be more unconventional than him and more interesting and, and more detailed. He's, he's, a, total, he's a total one-off, which is why, which is why I, I began the book with the story of him declining a lift in the pouring rain as I was driving out from Thorp Arch. Because I've said before on the on the Phil Hay show, if that had been my dad at 66, I would have said to him, get in the car and don't be stupid. It's pouring with rain, you're 45 minutes from home. I'll just run you around the corner. But for some reason with him, when he says, no, nah, I really like this, and off he toddles into this torrential downpour, you find yourself laughing, even though really you shouldn't be letting a 66-year-old wander off into the rain like that, you know. <laughs> but that's kind of him and there are so many quirks and, and so many differences to him. And, and the main thing with him is that it's all about the football. All about the football. It's all about coaching. He, he doesn't fixate on transfers. He, doesn't, he does get into the, the political side of football, but when he involves himself in the political side, it's normally to kind of concur with the supporters about how much they hate politics you know the, and, and I'm not talking about you know general politics as in taking the knee or Black Lives Matter or any of that stuff but the politics of football boardrooms and governing bodies and all that sort of stuff drives him mad because when you get to that point you totally detach from what football is which is a game with a crowd and that's what he lives for. I agree that we kind of needed to rip up the manual and start again and I feel like I see so many echoes in what Bielsa's done with Wilkinson when he joined Leeds. It's very similar to the 1990 promotion and what Wilkinson set out to do, which was to 
just change the DNA, change the identity of Leeds United. And he's, he's done exactly, exactly the same thing. But you could argue that Leeds were in a fairly desperate situation and needed somebody just to come in and, and just grab the bootstraps and start again. There is a, a long chapter in it, which is basically the decline from, well, I mean, it, it, it really started before the Champions League run because of the way they were setting up deals financially. It was like, it was putting trouble in the pipeline that, that as it happened, came after the run to the semi-finals, but was kind of always going to materialise because of the way, because of the risks that had been taken. And it runs on, and I mean, Ralph Innocent's done the audiobook, as we said at the start, it's brilliant actually. His voice for this is just absolutely perfect. And he said I had to stop a bit four times to cry during that because it is, the story is so miserable, you know, through that period. But I don't know how much Bielsa really knows about that. I don't know how much anybody's ever taken him through, you know, the potted history of why Leeds were a shambles. But you have to kind of see that to understand what he was fighting against and what it was that he was trying to turn around, you know, bring under control this beast of a club that was just prone to eating itself constantly and didn't seem to be get able to break out of the era of crises and, and everything else. But I mean, there are other characters in it too who, who I think you, ha- you have to, you have to recognise. Otter, who more and more, I think, has been vastly un- underestimated, including by me early on as a director of football, but not least because of the way he's had to manage Bielsa. That is a tough gig. <laughs> um, Kinnear, I think, I see criticism of Kinnear from time to time, but I actually think incredibly capable chief exec who a lot of other clubs would be quite quite happy to to employ. And there are things about Radrazani that frustrate me, you know, things like the the badge and everything else and the, the, the stuff that kind of from time to time almost drags leads into a little bit of disrepute, although nothing in comparison to what came before. But you cannot deny that it's been on his watch that this has happened and that he's finally done with this club. As owner, he's done what nobody else looked like doing in the interim. I don't think... Prior to Bielsa coming in, there's ever been a season where I genuinely felt like Leeds were headed for the Premier League, possibly Christmas under Grayson, although it was a little bit too early. With Even with Monk, there was a point where I thought they'd get to the playoffs. But even though I was putting money on them getting to the playoffs, I wouldn't have put money on them getting promoted through the playoffs. This is this period has, has done it. And I think it's, it's, it is predominantly down to Bielsa, I feel, but there is also a structure about around him which has allowed it to happen. Just a little left turn quickly. I said Ineson. You said Innocent. Which one is it? Because one of us owes him an apology. Oh, it might be me. I've always <laughs> called him Tomato and Tomato. I've always called him Ralph Innocent. Is it Ineson? Oh, Ralph. Sorry. One of us is sorry anyway. <laughs> Get in touch. Get in touch. Yeah. We'll owe you a pint. Uh, yes. Returning to Bielsa. Fixating on transfers you mentioned there. I, I feel like I've become a more knowledgeable fan by learning from Bielsa, watching how he operates and realising that as much as you know, we're, we're talking now in the closing stages of the 2021 summer window, and there's been a little bit of uh, angst around Leeds United's lack of uh, of movement. But I feel deep down quite okay about it. I think because I trust Bielsa to rinse every last drop out of the existing squad, and it's what he likes to do because he is he is so obsessed with coaching, and that goes some way to answering that question of uh, what does he get out of all this. You should never be obsessed with coaching to the extent that it damages the team because you will never be open to recruitment. There are some players who can only improve to a certain level. But I think what Bielsa has proved is that virtually everybody is capable of improving or a lot of people are capable if you pick sensibly. So when he took the squad on, he clearly did cut it up into those that I am absolutely not having. A little group of maybes, but probably going. And then a group of players that I'm very, very happy with, of, of which there was a really big core. And because he knew what he was doing, he knew that they could could improve. One of the things that always uh, always sticks with me is when he was in his first press conference at Ellen Road, we said to him, or somebody asked him, you know, realistically, what can you do this season? Because you only have five or six weeks to work with the players and you've never dealt with them before. You probably didn't, you probably never studied them until, you know, a couple of months ago, even though you'll have studied them intensely since then. And they also just said, five or six weeks is more than enough time to get them ready. Absolutely <laughs> no reason why they shouldn't be ready. Okay. And then they, they went and played like that against Stoke. And, and evidently, if you're playing well and getting results, then you have more and more time to work with them because things go on and you stay in the job for a while. But there has never been any of this, I could do with a couple more transfer windows. This is a new squad. We haven't had a lot of time. He, he hates setting low benchmarks as in, or setting benchmarks where he says you shouldn't expect any more of this because I think he sees, he sees it as a bit of a dereliction of duty. If you're the, if you're the head coach, 
you aspire to whatever you can get, you know, and you push yourself as, as far as you can. I mean, to ask you a question, midway through the promotion season, if you'd been offered Glenn Murray in that January when things were a bit iffy and Eddie and Ketty had left, would you have taken him? Probably, yeah. And, and the same with Billy Sharp. I think 90% of us would have said, in no way are we saying that they are stellar, stellar footballers who you want for the next five years. But when it comes to promotion, they'll probably do. You know, And the fact that he didn't want either of them, I think, tells you that he's not only committed to his plan, but he has total, total trust and faith in it. And sometimes it's going to go wrong, and it, and it will eventually go wrong at Leeds, you would think, because these things always do. I'm, I'm chuffed to bits for him, though, that he's through the window now where anybody can talk about burnout. Because if it ends after four years, if it ends after five, it would be totally ridiculous to say, ah, oh, they burnt out, as we always said they would, because they've had promotion. They've had a very strong year in the Premier League. You'll be able to look at it and say it's the natural conclusion that comes to most managers, which is that eventually they lose the grip, it goes wrong, the results turn, the players sometimes fall out of love with the, with the plan and they get sacked or they, they quit and the club move on. Nobody will be able to say you push the players too hard and ultimately you can't survive in a Bielsa regime because the ev- evidence is that you can. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One of the revelations for me about the toughness that you spoke about there and the, the, the clear delineation between players that he wants, there were some maybes and then there was the not wants. You mentioned in the book, the not wants were made to train at different times to the rest of the squad and even at a different site at Ascombe Bryan College just outside York. That was actually later on. That was a subsequent summer. In the first one, when he split them into groups, they, they were training at Thorpe Arch, but they would, they would come in at different times. And the reason was because Bielsa did not want people like Wasson Boy anywhere near the squad. He, he looked, Boy was one of the players he looked at and said, absolutely not. He, he goes, he's, he's, he's no use to me. I can't work with him. So Boy was on the list of people to go. So if Bielsa's players were turning up at 10 o'clock to do analysis sessions and then training and then more analysis sessions and, and during the summer as well, you know, they were sometimes there so late that they were going to stay at hotels nearby rather than driving home because there was kind of no point. The other players were made to come at times when the training ground was empty. And, and interestingly, we, we wrote last weekend at The Athletic about how you sell a footballer, how you get rid of a footballer that you want to go. And one of the tricks that is used by clubs is that they train with the 23s and they're no longer allowed to use like the first team car park or canteen and, and they get binned from the, the first team WhatsApp group um, at certain places. I don't know if that actually happens at Leeds. It wasn't that Bielsa was trying to do that as much as he wanted them to go. He just said, if any of these people are around, given that they're not going to be involved, then this potentially compromises us. So yeah, absolutely. There's there's no place for them here while first team training is going on. And where the facilities are concerned, there's uh, a separation of facilities that's gradually been enacted at, at Thorpe Arch, where the first team squad are very much separate to like the academy lot and part and parcel of uh, what Kinnear has described as best in class practice for the training ground is to have a very separate set of uh, facilities for the first team versus, you know, like you said, the, the kids who are coming in with their parents for the, the academy lot. You don't really want them all mixing together in the same car park at tea time, do you? 
No, very much so, even though there is quite a blend in training. And I think it makes it it makes it quite aspirational that you've got to you've got to work hard to make sure that you're in with the main group. And if you're not in the main group, you know that you've got you've got things to do. I mean, that was going to be the plan at the Matthew Murray site, which obviously not going to go ahead now. Was the, there were actually going to be separate entrances for the um, first team and the the twenty or the, the academy levels, which obviously can't be done at Thorpe Arch. But the the infrastructure changes there, I think, have helped to get leads into the mindset of what needs to be done to transform yourself from, if we're being brutally honest, a twentieth century club into a twenty first century club. I mean, I remember somebody at the academy telling me how Chilino knocked back a request to put up new signs at the um the training ground which would have cost not not substantial amounts of money hundreds or a small you know in the, the very low thousands but basically to make it look professional because the signs were old and so on and there's there's no denying that Leeds did not have a lot of cash at that time so I understand that Chilino would have been tightening his belt and whatever else but it was just a case of we're not doing that you know that's this not something we're spending money on the end you now have Bielsa saying, I want the same training pitch at Thorpe Arch that we've got at Ellen Road because that is a marginal gain and that gives us a, an advantage. And I think significantly, the club have gone with them on so many things like that. And it's dragged them forward as well in thinking, you know, should we have a new training ground? Should we get on with the development of the stadium? Should we try and make the infrastructure something that you would recognise if you were actually going to an ultra-modern Premier League club? And I will be very sorry when Ellen Road is no longer Ellen Road as we saw it on Saturday because I do love it like that. But that is not built for the modern day Premier League. And I think we're starting to realise, aren't we? It's dawning on us that we do need to upgrade things. Things have stood still at Ellen Road for such a long time. I mean, I don't want the same stadium as Spurs or the Emirates or any of that. I don't want it to look like Man City's either, the Etihad. I still want it to have a uniqueness. But I also completely appreciate that we need to move forward now in order to compete with the rest of them. And it's grubby to talk about revenue streams and things like that, but it's just become a necessary evil in football, hasn't it? And hopefully we can retain the Ellen Roadness of Ellen Road. Well, that's the balance, isn't it? And that's why clubs are taking the money from Socios and getting into fans tokens because it's easy cash and it's easy, you know, easy revenue and, and quite substantial amounts. And it means that you have the conflict of people like me who look at the fans tokens and have concerns about them and other people who think that you need to maximise your revenue streams. And actually, both arguments are kind of valid. On the one hand, you want clubs to invest in this player, that player, wages, new contracts, everything else. On the other hand, you want to kind of limit the um, you know where the money comes from. I think when you get into cryptocurrency, that becomes a, a really delicate area that you have to be very, very careful about. And I'm kind of digressing here. But you can almost relate this back to the point where they employed Bielsa on a Huge salary compared to what anybody at Leeds had earned before, certainly recently. I mean, David Hockaday, we were told, was getting about £150,000 a year. And and clearly that was a really weird setup and an, an odd appointment. And he, he had no huge bargaining power, didn't even expect to get the job. But Bielsa, you were talking millions suddenly. And it's the vast difference between... And, and it, loads of investment can go wrong if you don't do it properly. But that was the huge difference between a considered expensive investment and a total stab in the dark. And I do think that has been the starting point for so many changes that leave Leeds in, in so much of a better position. Could you pay for the book with chilies? I'm just checking. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. If, 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 you're tell, if you're telling me that, I, that in um, a year's time I can sell them for about £10 million, fill my boots. <laughs> oh, dear me. And just returning to the structure of it and the start to the end, it's, a, it's almost like a diary of the first Premier League season. Yeah. So we chart the... well. And it was beautiful. The rebirth of Leeds United, that's what the book is all about. Interspersed with loads of other little stories and... Thematics. Hop- yeah. Thematic hop- subjects, yeah. Oh, that's, the, that's a nice word. Hopping back that, in time. That was the publisher's word, actually. I can't um, take credit for that. It was them who said, what about thematic chapters? I thought, oh, that sounds good. <laughs> uh, so what thematic chapters do we have in there then? Tell me, tell me about what that book looks like when you open it. You have, obviously, the decline. You have the story of Bielsa's appointment, you know, how, how it was done. There's the there's a thematic chapter on the city and the changes here, motherball and training analysis, uh, the the assistants round about him, who are they, what do they do, how did this all come to pass, the hierarchy as well. I wanted to write about Orton and Kinnear and, and Radrazani. There's some great stuff from there in Orton. You, you start to learn actually. Um, anybody who hasn't seen your preseason release, the summer special one, yeah, there's a great interview in there that um, Moscow's done with Orton, and he touched on similar some similar themes. 
he goes on about how he had this um, sticker book when he was young, football card book, which he you put the cards in, stickers in, and um, he would get, and then you had to try and get players to sign underneath, you know, stick their autograph underneath. So he would go to hotels in Madrid when Sociedad turned up uh, or whoever else, and, and he'd, you know, he tried to get them to sign it. And some of the players would say to him, Victor, you're always right, why are you always here? You know, nobody else seems to care about this, but you're always here. And he, was, he would say, well, because I need to finish my, my sticker book. And he tells this great story about how he came home one day and his, his mum said to him, how was school today? I said, that ah, was fine, yeah. She said, oh, right, what were you doing? I said, oh, just the usual things. Oh, okay, okay, well, tell me a bit more about it. He, was, he said, why are you so interested in this? She said, because I put on the telly and the news had uh, footage of Juventus flying into Madrid Airport and there you were standing there <laughs> trying to get um, autographs from, from the players when you should have been at school. And he is a total, total football obsessive. For, for his for his faults, and I do talk a lot in it about how he has kind of ruffled feathers in directors' boxes over the past um, past couple of years. When you go into his office at Leeds, it's packed with football magazines. He's obsessed with and it, collecting. And it's, these. it's not a big office, is it? No, either? no. So I was looking at the table. There were some in Japanese, and I, I presume he doesn't speak Japanese. But you know, he, he's got like seventy percent of shoot magazines. He's got um, a couple from South America that he's got every single edition of. Because he's he's just so into to this sort of stuff. So there's a piece on the the hierarchy, and then the final chapter was kind of inspired by Fabian Costello, who we spoke spoke about right back at the start of this, and the kind of genesis of how did Bielsa become Bielsa? Because the, the, the a lot of connections between what he was doing even before being manager of Newell's, what he was doing as a, a youth team coach, and what he does now, and it, there's long enough in between to know. That none of this is contrived, and none of us, none of this is for the cameras, and none of this is for show. It's all because, as a coach, this is how he sees it. How important do you think the hierarchy at Leeds have been? We just sort of uh, got into it a bit there. Is it a perfect storm almost? With uh, you know, you look at Kinnear, Orta, Radrazani, and then Bielsa. Somehow it works. I think they've landed on the feet with a very good director of football who. He can seem quite egotistical, can Otter, but I actually think not a lot of what he does is particularly for his own benefit. I don't think he's, I think he finds criticism very hard to take, as most people do, but I don't think he's obsessed with the idea of people saying Otter is a genius or, or whatever the, the view of him is. And as I say, I think Kinnear is a really, really capable chief exec. And, and those appointments by Radrazani, I think, even though the first season was a, was a bit of a mess, I think created a bit of a proper structure and, and framework. Ian McIntosh, who, who works for The Athletic with me, he said earlier, he said, I wonder if anybody remembers my tweet, you know, the, the maddest club and the maddest coach, can this possibly work? And you do feel like there's a, an element of chaos theory to it until you think properly about the way Bielsa works and how detailed he is and, and everything else. If you were calling this chaos theory, it would be because it was happening through luck or by chance. But there isn't any of that. It's just the fact that at other clubs, it sometimes hasn't worked for him. They either haven't liked him or his methods haven't clicked with the players or it's just been all all wrong. But here, it has been a perfect match. Who's the glue that holds it all together? I think Orta is the glue that holds it all together. I really do. You've, he, it's Orta who manages. It's that thing of managing up and managing down. I mean, you couldn't talk really about managing down with Bielsa because it feels like Bielsa sits, <laughs> a, you know, sits above everybody, even though Radrazani is your your, um, your majority shareholder. But it's Alter who manages him. It's Alter who then has to manage upwards. There are people who have to manage Alter from time to time. Kinnear, in particular, I think. Um, and you do get you do get differences of of opinion. But I almost feel like Alter's story is the kind of hidden hidden part of this. Not not the recruitment, because you see a lot of that, although you don't see half of what goes on with him and the team around him. It's not purely him when it comes to recruitment. You know, there is a is a big scouting team, but it's the management of personalities and the management of emotions, not just with Bielsa, but with the general staff as well, that he's he's very, very good at. I, I don't envy his job, put it that way. And he's really well thought of by the staff, isn't he, uh, Bielsa, even though he is incredibly demanding on a just on a day-to-day basis? One of the things that became apparent the more I wrote was, and people I spoke to, in the club but out of the club, so people who have skin in the game with him, people who don't. When it comes to people who don't, he's incredibly generous with them and accommodating, even though I think he finds personal interaction quite a challenge. You know, it doesn't come that naturally to him. He's, he, he devotes, look, I know people who get 
WhatsApp messages from him because they do kind things for him. And in return, it's like, you know, I don't think I'm giving away any secrets here by saying you guys have been up to Thorpe Arch because he loves your end of season reviews that you do. He sees them. There's nothing- sadly, sadly, he wasn't there, I should add. He was uh, he was away in a meeting at that point. He must have heard you were coming. But, <laughs> he, but he sees this stuff. He knows that it's no skin off his nose that you're doing it. And he knows that you're devoting time to this stuff to write about him and his players and everything else. So he really, 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 really appreciates it. In the same way as when COVID started, the lockdown, the first lockdown after COVID started to ease, he was insistent that one of the first people he had to come back from furlough was uh, a woman called Izzy who works in the canteen and has worked there for years. And not because there was anything in it for him, but because he saw what she did. He really, really appreciates the rank and file staff. And he wanted to make sure that she was looked after. Once you get to the level of first team players, chief execs, directors of football, he expects an extraordinary amount of them. And it becomes intensely professional. It is like an ultra professional relationship in which he can be difficult to please and difficult to satisfy. And sometimes he can be wildly infuriating. I don't think anybody would would deny that, but it works. And in the same way that the players go with it with really, really intense training, because they see the results. It's the same with the. It's the same with the management. They see what he does and they see the impact he he has. And in the balance of his hard work versus he's an absolute magician, the magician wins every time. Do you think you've uncovered any weaknesses within Marcelo Bielsa? I mean, we're all human. We've all got faults. What what did you find when you uh, explored his character in this? I often wonder what his circle of friends is like. You know, how many people is he really, really close to? And I think that's a personality thing more than ever. He seems quite happy with his lot. You always have that question in your head of when he gets to the age where he is retired and afterwards, will he wish ever that he'd maybe devoted a bit more time to other things in his life or other people? Is it, He's a definite loner, without a doubt. And But it seems quite happy in that in that bubble. You know, that seems to be what he needs and, and how, he, how he lives. You can call the obsession with training and analysis a weakness when it doesn't work. Because I think when it become, for example, I, I spoke to um, Andoni Iriola, who played with him at Bilbao and got used to the motherball sessions over there. They called it champions, but it was the same thing. And I asked him, do you think other coaches would try to employ this? Because he's managing now, he's at Real Vallecano now. Would you use this? You know, because it worked for Bielsa. And he said, no, absolutely no chance because the players wouldn't have it from me. Realistically, a lot of coaches would find it hard to say to players, we're going to do this every week because you run the risk of them saying, what have you ever done in the game? You're, you're killing us here, but you have no, you know, you have no right to kill us in this way. Whereas it's different with Bielsa. You cannot argue with his reputation or his track record and it helps that you constantly have Guardiola over the Pennine saying, this guy is the best coach in the game bar none. And, you know, how do you, how do you contest that? But, when it grates on people, when people get tired with it, if players don't go with it, it is going to go wrong. But to be quite honest, isn't that true of every manager? It does end badly for everybody one way or another, doesn't it? Usually. Yeah. The, the one exception being Ferguson at Manchester United. He is one of the few managers who has managed to have huge peaks and then go go without there being this huge demise before it, it happened. Even Wenger at Arsenal. I mean, it's sad really to see how little Wenger seems to want to go back to Arsenal because it it got so sour in the end. And you would hate to think that it would ever be like that with Bielsa. But I can't, however it goes with him, I don't think it'll ever go beyond the point where people don't feel intense gratitude for what he's done. I definitely think whenever the time comes, he will will leave a hero. He'll be carried out. He'll be chaired out of, uh, of Yorkshire and hopefully will be welcomed back pretty soon afterwards. One thing I would wonder is, is he too concerned with what's written about him and opinion of him. Do you think that sways his his state of mind more than your average manager? Well, I do touch on this, the fact that in the mornings that he has staff who read the press and translate the press and let him know what's being said about him. I can understand why he would fixate on it, even though he gives you the impression that he, you know, keeps his distance from the the media and everything else and it almost gives the impression that it doesn't really matter what they say because he'll do his own thing anyway. When he comes under attack, you have to say that it seems to be more vicious and in some cases more personal than it is with your average manager. I think because so much is said about how clever Bielsa is and how unique he is and, and how talented he is, that when it doesn't look like that in the flesh, 
the tendency does seem to go in with with two feet. There was a weird piece in the Mirror a couple of weeks back, which was going on about how if he wasn't in a one bedroom flat above a chiropractor's, but was in a gated community, I think the was phrase this, was. Was this Collymore? I think it was. Yeah, the gated community, as in to, as if to say, if he was in an environment where the general public couldn't get anywhere near him, then this would all be more serious, or he would be a better coach, or he would think more. Totally, about- totally misunderstanding and misrepresenting what it is that makes Bielsa tick, which is pleasing, I'll use the phrase reservedly, but the ordinary fan, if you like. Yeah, and I don't see why it would be a good thing for Bielsa to shut himself off from the world at all. In fact, I think it would have a massively detrimental impact on him. And it wouldn't change the way he played and it wouldn't change what he does. His team just is what it is. His tactics are what they are. When it goes wrong, he merits criticism like everybody else because I don't think you can get battered at Old Trafford two, two visits running and expect people to say, that ah, doesn't matter. You know, yeah, people should dig into what you're doing. You're a very technical guy. You're big on tactics. You're big on things working. If they don't, you know, ask why they didn't. But the, the evidence is massively in his favour. You know, the track record is is in his favour. And, and I can imagine that he reads some of what's written and feels that it's a bit too personal or that there's this constant attempt to start the argument about is he actually special, this guy, or is he just bang average with a very good PR machine around him? Um, I, I often say to myself, just remember that you might be might be biased about this because you're on the scene and you're very close up to it. But I do genuinely think this has been special. I do think this has been absolutely remarkable period and a, a real enlightenment about what you can do with a club and players if you have this sort of plan in your head. And I do think he's exceptional. I think Guardiola's right. And it's made more special by the fact that you can bump into him in Morrison's, in his tracksuit. It's To me, it adds to the myth. It doesn't detract from it. He says he doesn't get that, but he must get that. Because when did you last bump into Guardiola in the newsagents or, you know, going around the, the Morrison's with his trolley? And I'm not saying that Guardiola's... It wouldn't be fair to say that he's out of touch in that sense. He'll, get, just an, that, he'll get an Ocado delivery will uh, Guardiola. It'd be Fortnum and Mason, no? Probably. Yeah, yeah no, Ocado, not a chance. But Guardiola is not wrong if he says to himself, if I go out and shop in Tesco's, I'll have people all over me. I'll probably never get out of there and, and you know, it'll, it'll go everywhere. But he also just doesn't understand it like that. He, he just thinks, well, I'm just going out to get some food, you know. And, <laughs> and so he does in the same way that he sits in Costa shares table. He'll make space for, you know, you'll have people come in Sunday coffee. Tables will all be full. So he'll make space and, you know, they share this table and, I don't think he talks to them and they don't talk to him. They all just have their own space and it's fine. But you've got him sitting watching video clips, them sitting around <laughs> chatting, having a having a coffee. But I think over time, people learn not to leave him alone because obviously you see a lot of photographs of people with him and, and people like to do that. But I think people understand that that's his environment and he does need his own space and there's a way to manage that and there's a way to act when you're you're around him so that you're not all over him. But he has huge amounts of patience. I mean, I always felt with Eddie Gray that I don't know how he ever learned to A, be able to speak to the hundreds of people that tried to speak to him at every game and B, to, to sign all the autographs that he constantly have, has to sign without, to, as far as I can see, ever complaining about it. And I know you can say, well, it's nice when people think of you like that. And it is. There are also times when you want to be left alone. Yeah. Like, and Eddie is a genuine rock star in Leeds, isn't he? That's the I, thing. He is. I mean, if it's a, a question of whose statue should be at... Um, should be Ellen Road further down the line it, it would be Eddie's and I don't think Bielsa would argue with that Bielsa would hate the idea of having a statue you know if, if someone said yeah we're going to put a statue of you he would feel kind of honoured and touched by it but he would also say why on earth why? are you doing this why are you doing this because you you know the, the times where you try to say to him and we sort of labour this point after promotion in no way can you say this has nothing to do with you it just isn't credible to say that and I always loved the fact that when promotion came he did get in the mix and he did enjoy it. Even just for a couple of days, you know, he he, he let his hair down and he let himself go. And it was nice to see that actually it did really, really matter to him that much. It is funny how he's he has transcended superstardom because, as I said, on, I think it was on the Phil Hay show, I made a pilgrimage to Weatherby Morrison's. I needed to stop somewhere on my way up to Newcastle. I thought, hmm, I'll, ju- I'll just pop in there to get my, uh, my drinks for the cart rather than anywhere else that I could have gone that was either closer or more convenient. Just on the off chance. He wasn't there, I would like to add, but there are very few players that could, or managers, sorry, that could inspire a grown man to go to those ridiculous lengths. 
Yeah, I can imagine the security guard looking at the camera going, here's this guy again and he never buys anything, but he comes in and stands around for 45 <laughs> minutes and then and then goes back out. There is a definite bit of that. People love seeing him seeing him in the street. And I, I don't know, I, I kind of feel like there's a lot of negativity generally in football. And I've I've been guilty of getting sucked in by that. I've probably fueled some of it with some of what I've written over the years. Equally, there have been times at Leeds where it has been intensely negative and there's been very little to feel positive about. And it is really, really nice. In, in the same way as on Saturday, I massively enjoyed the reaction to the taking of the knee. Just that, you know, that total injection of support. This is the, Ever- the Everton game. Against Everton, yeah. yeah. Um, it's been the same with Bielsa. Just this total desire to see it, see it work for him and to to do well. There was nobody turning on him after the Derby defeat in the playoffs. You know, people wanted him to have another bash. They wanted it to to work out for him. Nobody wanted him to to go after promotion, even though there's all the messing about this contract. They wanted him to stay. They wanted to see what was going to happen in, in the Premier League. Maybe there will come a time when people tire of this because that's, that is often the way, you know, the way things work out. Um, but it still feels like we're quite away from that. Yeah, he's still very much a sacred cow, I would yeah. argue. So, I mean, in terms of what you've written here, then, never mind the negative, awful stuff you've written in the past. You've got your book here. What have you written here, then? What will Leeds fans get out of this, do you think? I'd like to think that it'll give them a, a really clear insight into how it's worked and why this has worked. You know, not not just what's gone on, but why it is that the things that have gone on have made a difference and how it's all knitted together. And I hope that they'll enjoy the forward by author, which I just think is alter to a T, but also really good insight into why they took this plunge. And the last chapter, which, you know, does have some insight from Bielsa, it's it's not a one-on-one. And I, I did point that out in the book because I don't I wouldn't want him to think that it was being portrayed like that. And we did I did speak to the publishers specifically and we agreed, you know, we said we cannot say that these are exclusive quotes because he has been known on interviews where people have said we've got a Marcelo Bielsa exclusive. To just say there and then, I don't do exclusives. This isn't exclusive. There's loads of media around and about, you know. So it's it's one of the things that that does frustrate him. But the last chapter was, I think, as close as I'll ever get to to knowing what is in his head and and where where this all came from. And is that what you've got out of this? Never mind what's in it for like the for the reader, but what's in it for you as well? What have you taken out of the experience of, of writing about it? The feeling that I probably never cover anything like this again. People might not remember, but in 2012, Hearts and Hibs got to the Scottish Cup final and we Hearts battered Hibs. <laughs> it was it was glorious. And I was 31 and I was I, I didn't have a ticket for it, so I watched it in the pub down in York. And I was walking home thinking, at 31, I'm never going to see a better game than that. It doesn't matter what happens now. There will never be a game that will be like that. No matter if, if Hearts win the title or win the European Cup, which never happened, but it will never be that Edinburgh Derby annihilating them, just the the absolute peak. And you know, I'm I'm not that old now, but I'm I'm starting to get on. But <laughs> I I can't imagine I'm ever going to have anything quite like this to write about again. Which is why when the publishers tried to talk me into it, they they did because I did think to myself, why wouldn't you want to write about this? You know, this is kind of opportunity to to properly get into a a story that has a beginning and and kind of has a an end already even though there's still time of Bielsa to go. And really, it had to be done. To return to the question that we uh, we kind of kicked all this off with, do you think you've learned what football does for Marcelo Bielsa? And obviously, we want people to buy the book and read it, so don't give the game away completely. But do you think you've figured that one out? I think it gives, it from a very early age, it gave him a passion that he found nowhere else. His family are politicians and architects. He says he didn't have the intelligence to be a university student, I suspect it was nothing to do with intelligence, but possibly more to do with interest or actually the willingness to apply himself to that because there probably was no underlying passion for it. And he found in football, he as a, as a personality, he is withdrawn. He's not particularly outgoing. He strikes me as a sort of guy who doesn't necessarily find fun all over the place in his life or perhaps direction. But this was... It was well. I think it was a calling for him. You know, it was like somebody going into the priesthood. Really, this was what his life was going to be about, and this is why at sixty-six he's not on the beach and he's not retired to his ranch in Rosario. He is right in the thick of it, demanding that Leeds get the training ground pitch laid ASAP. Well, nice work on it. It's a really good read. I've not read it all yet because I've only had it for a couple of days, but I've read all the important bits and enjoyed it a great deal. And I do think as time wears on 
it's really important to have this this documented. So nice work. Well Thank done. Thank you. Uh, and it's available now. And it was beautiful. Marcelo Bielsa and the Rebirth of Leeds United by, uh, by Phil Hay. Available, I think you've got to say, in all good bookshops and the bad ones too. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. That's the standard And the bad ones too, yes. Hardback, ebook, and audiobook. And we look, we look forward to the sequel, Phil. All right, go, <laughs> crack, crack on with it now, please. The Square Ball Podcast. 